And I think anyone who can be racialized as an insurgent is also seen as a threat in this particular way within kind of the imaginary of U.S. imperialism, that that idea of the insurgent, the original insurgent, the original terrorist still very much is part of the way that indigenous people and indigenous nations are racialized and thought of uh, by the United States. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everybody. I'm, uh, my name is David Correa, and um, I'm, I'm glad to sort of pseudo or uh, sort of semi-moderate um, our discussion today of the, of the um, launch of our new um, Haymarket book, um, Violent Order, Essays on the Nature of Police. Um, Tyler Wall and I are the co-editors of the book, and um, among the really amazing a list of contributors in the book, we have two of them with us today to talk about their chapters and the whole, the whole, the larger book project, uh, Melanie Yazzie and Julie Z. And I'll introduce them a little bit more in a second, and they'll, they'll talk a little bit about their, their chapters as well. Um, before we get started with anything, I just want to thank Haymarket. Um, Haymarket's been so really amazing to work with, particularly Anthony and Rory and, and John um, and Nisha, um, who's leaving Haymarket. So good luck, um, Nisha, with everything that comes next for you. Uh, uh, and, you know, I also want to I want to um, just briefly before saying a little bit more about the book and what it is exactly, thank the contributors who are with us today here. And, you know, we've got a, a really I think a really fantastic list of contributors, some of whom I hope are watching. So um, Phil McCarris has a terrific chapter. Um, Andrea Smith, not Andrea Smith. I'm so sorry. Andrea Miller. Um Axel Gonzalez, who's a graduate student finishing his PhD at New Mexico. And Melanie's laughing right now because I said Andrea Smith, which is the biggest faux pas. I mean, that's very Freudian almost, I think. So stop laughing, Melanie, because I, you're just tiny in the corner of my screen. I can't even concentrate. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so Axel Gonzalez, uh, um, I wanted to also thank Mark Neoclius and Travis Linneman. Um, for contributing really terrific chapters to the book. Um, I've always wanted to work with both Mark and Travis um, and certainly with Julie and, and Melanie. So this book has given uh, me at least that opportunity. And, and also um, a, a lot of thanks uh, to Rachel Herzing, who wrote the foreword to the book and the foreword she calls The Fantasy of Police, which I think is a terrific um, title for, for a foreword that really lays out and, and it really explicitly that you know the police reformism that we write a, against in this book, and I think that has seized, you know, um, that has attempted to co-op every anti-police violence or anti-police movement or every abolitionist movement about police and prisons, um, is really basically a, a particular kind of a fantasy because it doesn't actually produce the outcomes ever promised, but but often you know much worse, which we'll we'll talk about today. So thanks, you, thank you um, very much, Rachel. Um, you know. Briefly, what I want to do is I want to just, uh, and Tyler, jump in too here, because we want to just um, 
provide a very brief description about the book, how it came together, what Tyler and I had in mind when we started editing it. Um, and then I'd like to introduce um, Julie and, and Melanie in their chapters, and, and Tyler and I will talk a little bit about our, our chapters as well. Um, after Tyler and I wrote Police, a field guide in 2018, which which we published with Verso, um, and and when that book came out, we 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 talked about what we wanted to do together next. And the first thing we wanted to do is continue to collaborate. I, I love working with Tyler. Um, Tyler, um, Tyler told me, by the way, very many times, but when we were preparing for this, that I was supposed to apologize for his performance tonight in advance. <laughs> so any Tyler makes any refusals to answer questions, Tyler might demonstrate. Um, don't don't hold it against him. He just <laughs> he doesn't like this stuff. But anyways, I, I, I've said to Tyler many times, there's a reason why we write for a living, because we don't want to talk about it. I mean, that's why we write, because we like to take the time to think through things we're going to say, because otherwise we say stupid things sometimes. So, Tyler, I'm, I'm apologizing in advance for everything that Tyler says that might be stupid. So and me, too, by the way, <laughs> Anyone who knows that, I'll often say there's ridiculous things, and and I apologize. Never in print, though. That's why I like to write. Um, so, but seriously, um, well, you know, one of the things that we we really interested in, uh, we spent a lot of time in the book, Police a Field Guide, writing these. I thought I think very short, direct entries. Um, the whole point of Police a Field Guide was to try to pull the curtain back on police and policing, uh, and to demonstrate the way that the language of policing, a, a language we call cop speak you know, is a language of obfuscation, but also, you know, it's a way to police our language. It's, you know, what we, the language we have to talk about cops is a language given to us by cops, right? You know, so, and, and you know, the things we, we, we explain, the way we explained them in the book was, you know, like cops don't just patrol our streets. They patrol the language we have to talk about them. And in, in one way or another, we have a cop in our head, you know, um, and we have to fight it. We have to abolish that cop in our head. And, and we thought that, you know, police a field guide would provide, you know, this sort of very broad um, uh, set of descriptions and definitions of terms and concepts that might, you know, arm us against the pernicious effect and forces of, of reform, which, you know, uh, all, all, all reform does is co-op more radical uh, movements um, redirect that energy in ways that actually end up trying to reinforce in the course of institutions and death dealing institutions like police. And so, you know, it's no accident that every single reform process in every single town has always ended up with more cops, more guns and more and more violence. So, you know, w w we wanted to talk a little bit about what would be next. And, um, you know, one thing that we were really fascinated about and it, I think it, it factors in this book, in Tyler's chapter. Tyler's uh, has the first chapter in the book, and it's about the thin blue line. And Tyler sort of takes a historical and, and philosophical approach to trying to tease out um, the implications of, of the thin blue line. And if you know, and I don't guess I have to explain the thin blue line to anybody, but you know, th this idea that cops have that they're the line between civilization and savagery is li literally the way that cops describe it. And it's not just that cops patrol the line, but that policing literally is that line. And 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 that is actually the implications of that. I think are fascinating because number one, it it really suggests that cops um, generate civilization itself, or maybe you could say that cops consider themselves or itself or the police powers in general synonymous with civilization, right? Which is which is part of the the sort of the 
the the compelling nature of reform for a lot of people, which is like without cops, you don't have civilization. So how do we have civilization with cops, right? That's the sort of reformist calculus. Um, but one of the things that that I'm interested in, because a lot of my work has been around environmental justice and environmental politics, was the way in which, you know, when we talk about policing as order maintenance, or when Mark Neoklis calls, um, or, you know, please literally fabricate order, um, you know, for me, that can't just be a conversation about what we might consider social order, right? Because because you know, when when cops talk about order, right, they they present it in a sort of a natural order, right? It's it, this is a natural order, right? And police are just uh, just enforcing what they might want to call a natural order, and they're constantly drawing on whether it's metaphors for nature or 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 literally describing what they do as natural or animalizing or demonizing certain people or populations in order to reinforce their authority. Um, you know, they're relying on nature to give that sheen of legitimacy that cops require to operate. And so we wanted to explore that, right? And, and I thought the best way to do that, and, 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 and Tyler, and between the two of us, we sort of figured out a way to do it together, was was to sort of bring together people that are working in that that area, really thinking about environmental politics, environmental justice, writing about um, um, the politics of nature alongside people writing about police, writing about policing. There's there's I think that we're really useful exchange there. Um, and we wanted to bring those scholars together to do that. Um, and so um, I think that's what this this book really accomplishes. I mean, in, in every chapter, the contributors are trying to figure out what we call uh, trying to figure out what exactly might be the nature of police. Uh, and and by nature, we're really we're really thinking broadly, right? Like like what is the what is the nature of police? Um, how do police rely on metaphors of nature and the natural in shoring up legitimacy? How do police literally organize nature, right? Um, it's not just uh, labor that police ensure um, can be delivered to capital and the amounts it needs, but also natural resources, nature itself. Um, and so, you know, Axel Gonzalez's uh, chapter in this book examines um, the role of police in, in, in protests against pipelines. Um, Andrea Miller's chapter examines um, sort of ecological science and the and and the sort of the role of police and policing, particularly pro, um, manipulating property relations, racialized property relations, in the origins of ecology as a, as a science. Um, Mark Neoklis's chapter uh, examines a television show Dexter, right, and, and in a chapter called "The Monster of Police," um, in which you know the monstrosity of police is both part of the the legitimate legitimating exercise of police, but also um, um, it's it's like a you know the police have a lot more in common with with those they attempt to police than they don't, um, and manage that that relationship. Um, um, Phil, Phil McHarris has a sort of great sort of survey, uh, I, I think, in the chapter just after Tyler's, examining the ways in which, um, you know, policing uh, and, and attempts to reform policing are always bound to fail. Um, and uh, and Travis Linneman's chapter um, examines what we might call trophy shots, right? I mean, uh, you know, I'm working on a book about a, a young Navajo activist killed by police, a young activist named Larry Casus. And, you know, when cops kill people, um, you know, it's not uncommon for them to take photos of themselves, right? Often with 
with the people they've killed in the picture or with some sort of what we might call, um, you know, the sort of the booty of their kill. Um, and then horrifying practice, um, you know, reveals something, I think, at the heart uh, of policing. Or I, say, I should say, whenever we say at the heart of policing, I should add, if police had a heart, which police doesn't. So, you know, that's just a metaphor. Um, so and, and and I want so that's that's the sort of general introduction to the to the book. And I want to I want to since we have Julie and, and Melanie and Tyler uh, with us today, I want to just give them a chance to say a little bit more about their own chapters before we jump into uh, a more sort of general discussion. Um, and before I do that, I just want to remind everyone watching um, we 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 this is not designed as a sort of like a panel presentation. We want to really do this informally and have a discussion. And so, um, if you have questions, you can post it in the discussion, and uh, and uh, they'll get they'll make their way to us, and and hopefully we'll be able to answer some of the questions that that folks might have as we're going, rather than waiting to the end. Don't if you have a question, don't wait to the end um, to share it. We can we can talk about it throughout. Um, Okay, so I wanted to I wanted to start with with Julie's chapter. Um, Julie had her dog. Her chapter is called "The White Dog and Dark Water: Police Violence in the Central Valley," and it's a chapter that she examines Kern County, the San Joaquin Valley. Um, and uh, I just want to briefly sort of just um, set the scene, Julie, and then you you, you take up a sort of a, a more a, a better description of your chapter. But what I what I love about your chapter is the way that you link what cops would call crime and caging with what you call coplands and croplands, right? And it's the combination of the two, right? The bringing together, the linking of the sort of the, the sort of coercive state violence, police and prisons, um, with the sort of the, the you know, the Kern County has a, the, at least in 2015, the worst air in the country, and also the most police killings per capita, right? And and you point out in your chapter that these, sort of like in my chapter, which I'll talk about a little bit later, but you, you talk about in your chapter, well, how the, these are not unrelated patterns, that we have to understand them as related in a very specific way, which you call the sort of specific terrain of racial capitalism, as producing deathscapes. And so, I mean, I want to, maybe you could, Julie, and Julie, by, Julie, by the way, I, wanna, I should, horrible introductions uh, I'm providing here. Uh, Julie is a professor at the University of California, Davis. Um, uh, I've, I've known Julie for, for many years. I, I, she's such a terrific scholar. Um, and uh, she uh, she's, she's written about environmental justice. She has a, a new book out with the University of California Press in the American Studies Now series on uh, environmental justice. And please say a word about that if you'd like, Julie, because I think that's a really important book right now, um, which, which, which engages with Black Lives Matter, with police violence in that book as well. So I think Julie is a, a perfect person. She's already working at the intersection of a sort of environmental justice scholarship and and state violence and police and, and, and prisons. Um, and so your your chapter is, I think, just brilliantly gets right at the links that are usually so hard to see, that are usually understood as not linked at all, right? That what 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 is like terrible air quality and water quality have anything to do with police and policing? And yet you really identify, I think, clearly what what it how it's linked. Uh, what it means to say it's linked, linked, and and what it might mean then for our 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 politics, our abolitionist politics against police. So, Julie, I mean, please um, maybe expand on that if you'd like, however you'd like, and then and then I'll ask questions of of everyone else and give them a chance to talk about their chapters as well. 
Thanks for that um, introduction and also the opportunity to talk about this um, work as well. Um, I, came, I come to this work as a scholar activist that's worked um, on environmental justice for 27 years um, and specifically on the Central Valley for about at least 15. Um, and so uh, I am, um, you know, when you talk about the croplands and capitalism, many of you are already familiar with that's Ruthie Gilmore from Golden Gulag. You know, when she talks about why in the Southern San Joaquin or why in the Central Valley, that's where all the prisons got located. So in some sense, all I did was like extend her um, analysis, her Marxist analysis to instead of just looking at prisons to looking at policing and caging more broadly. Um, and so uh, what I do and some of this um, chapter was motivated by different things I've been thinking about and working on for a while. Um, I've been really interested in race and animalization um, for some time. Um, I would, you know, I wanted to really understand, you know, because of the literature on settler colonialism and racial capitalism, what that means in the specific context of the, of California more broadly, but the Southern San Joaquin in general, where there's both, you know, this extreme normalized, um, state violence that, um, makes the lives and, um, makes the, the deaths inevitable of certain populations so that others may live. Um, and so what I wanted to do was think about, you know, beyond like, oh, there's this all this scholarship about settler colonialism and racial capitalism. What does it mean in this particular context? And even bear, bore down even more broadly to the southern um, San Joaquin within there, there's actually one county which is different from the others, even though on paper they all kind of are intensive um, big ag um counties, and that's Kern County, because Kern has um, the most oil producing um, within California as well. So ultimately, you know, the argument is, you know, if you, you take the, the insights of the scholarship and the activism around settler colonialism and racial capitalism, you know, it's actually very powerful to really look into Kern County in particular. And so that what I try to basically do is like um, go from the set of facts, like worst air quality, worst per capita but a killing, police killing, um, to think about how these conditions of slow and fast violence are normalized. And the reason why they're normalized is so that uh, the conditions of petro-racial capitalism as a deathscape um, are like, is it's how we get to where we are now. And so what I wanted to do, because it wasn't, I did not know enough about how settler colonialism unfolded in that specific landscape, was to understand it more specifically. And, you know, this this also represents my own need to learn, you know, where more my own, you know, historical gaps are. So part of it was, um, you know, learning about the 1863 Keysville massacre, where there was, you know, basically a, a death march of a thousand um, uh, uh, native folk down in that region as well, um, where they, they got moved from that region in Kern to Fort Tejon, and how there's still an ongoing um, land reclamation, land battle um, to go back um, for that. And so what I was also interested in is that, you know, there's this, you know, again, having worked on the Central Valley for a long time, there's this way in which this extreme social, environmental, um, political violence just gets accepted, you know, like, oh, of course, that's where it is. And, you know, as as a scholar that's grounded in movements and justice movements, you know, I, I always reject the kind of, you know, normalization of that level of violence. And so thinking about 
And the environmental justice movement itself, I'm always guided by their precepts, which is to never separate those things. You know, so never separate oil extraction from extreme pesticide exposure to extreme air and water pollution, extreme, um, you know, educational inequality, extreme uh, wildfire exposure, um, you know, the, the hardest hit by drought and so on. You know, the environmental justice movement activists always reject that kind of separation of things. And so what I wanted to do was honor the activism and the histories, the complex racial and settler histories of the Central Valley and that region in particular, which meant like learning and reading more than what I already knew. And so that was that was part of it. Um, And then, you know, but emerging from this sort of set of facts, which in some sense was kind of obvious, but also dis- remains disturbing to me. So, you know, the, the Bakersfield Police Department and the Kern County Sheriff's Office, you know, are by far like they're, they're like lethal death machines where they use um, police, uh, police dogs in particular to hunt and kill black and brown people. Um, and so they, so that's basically, you know, the, the like general, um, uh, you know, idea of that. And so, you know, the question is, what's the nature of police violence in both defining and then and maintaining the racial and spatial order under these conditions of petro-capitalism? And so, you know, thinking about the uniqueness of Kern, the oil, um, the black and white relations, um, because there's a southern, a deep south um, way in which um, it plays out in in Kern that's different from Tulare um, and the other counties that are near it and so on. And so, you know, it, it was looking at um, like the case studies, the activism, um, and also linking it to the environmental justice movements, you know, rel- like relentless and nonstop um, resistance to the normalization of their of their um, violence so that um, industrial agriculture and oil extraction and hydraulic fracking can continue unabated. So that's both the political context, but also, you know, some of the theoretical um, questions that were motivating me as I as I wanted to learn more about how they um, kind of converge in that way. So I think I'll just leave it there. Thanks, Julia. I mean, I, I, you know, there's this there's this horrifying section in your chapter about the sort of sadism of a specific individual cops. Um, and what's, I think, brilliant about your chapter and what I think all of us try to do in our chapters is, is, you know, outside of the context you place, it's really easy to think, oh, look at all these bad apple cops operating in Kern County, right? I mean, just really just some sadistic shit they're doing to folks. And you, I'm not going to read this, but um, anyone who reads Julie's chapter will see this. But it's it, within this con- context of deathscapes you described, it becomes very clear, right, that this is not outliers, this is not an aberration, right? The nature of cops is not to ev- every now and then hire the wrong cop, but rather to really incorporate into it the kind of death dealing and, you know, that to produce this, the, the conditions for this, right? To, and, to reinforce all this. And the leadership, you know, these, these county sheriffs and also police department heads will just explicitly be like, who are you talking about? Or wait, is it that person? And, you know, the, the kind of callousness. Um, and then, you know, of course, these are the, the counties that are like the, the most right leaning within California, the most aligned, you know, um, nationally um, with right. a certain kind of politics. But, you know, I mean, to the, the, and the brazenness, the openness yeah. with it, you know, about how like, you know, on the, the, um, 
canine um, police officers, I think they say, you know, we we kill or we we club. I can't remember the exact thing, yeah. you know. Um, and so again, um, the the justice movements, you know, against police violence, but also environmental justice, they they resolutely like reject that kind of. Yeah dehumanization and the the kind of animalization that happens um, against them. Yeah, I think you capture that really brilliantly. And and what's really great is is how, you know, you, you take sort of you explode the idea in your chapter that they're they're you know, that this sort of sadism or this sort of the the really sort of the, the gruesome sort of revelry that cops give to their murder, their, their the grinding harassment and violence that they deal. Um, is is anything other than a, a, a central part of the the cop mandate, um, and 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 Melanie's chapter I think then takes up like brilliantly like not only is this not not an outlier, not only is the sadism of police not um, not an example of bad apple policing, but it's actually um, enshrined in law, right? So so Melanie and so Melanie Yazi, for anyone that doesn't know, is an assistant professor of Native American studies at American Studies at the University of New Mexico, is a colleague of mine. Um, and uh, I've had the opportunity to work on with a number of projects and I've loved doing that. And she wrote a chapter for our book called The um, Armed Friendlies of Settler Order, specifically, well, starting with examining a particular case of a, of a, a Winslow, Arizona cop named Austin Shipley, killing a young uh, Navajo woman named L'Oreal Sinajini. And, and, and actually, um, you know, Melanie, I think, I think it was probably like the day after she was killed by Austin Shipley, Melanie and Nick and others were on a train to went, uh, to Arizona. And so there was enormous protests. And if she wants to talk about that, it would be great. Um, and then, in fact, the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission asked Melanie and myself um, and Shreen Razik, um, and I'm not sure, am I missing anyone, Melanie, to actually investigate to, to look at the Department of Public Safety in Arizona's investigation of the killing, because the Department of Public Safety said everything that Austin Shipley did when he killed L'Oreal Sinajini, by the way, she was she was walking down the street, just walking down the street, minding her own business when he just came up behind her and killed her. And Melanie will, will talk about this, um, was completely legal. Everything he did was to the book, was defensible, the, just the cruelty of what he did, the, just the, uh, the horrifying nature of the of the killing. Um, was completely enshrined in law. And 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 what Melanie does in, in her chapter is examine in particular the context of that killing, right? Like, so what is the context? How is it possible that something so obviously sadistic, some, something so obviously tied to settler uh, order, you know, just a white vigilante cop killing a, a young Navajo woman can just go unremarked? By, by anybody, uh, you know, how, how is it? And and what that what that examination takes Melanie through is is the particular sort of ideology at the heart of policing, at least for Shipley, which is the Punisher, right? It's sort of this this sort of we've ever since I think January sixth, people are are more willing to recognize the influence of things like the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and the Punishers among police. Um, Melanie's been writing about that much longer and demonstrates, uh, you know, what that ideology means, where it comes from, um, its connection to a much longer order, a, a real war against against Native people by police vigilant and vigilantes in her chapter. And and Melanie, you know, please describe, you know, give us a short description, however you'd like. But I really love the language that you use in your piece about what you call an ecology of counterinsurgency, like the sort of array of of tactics and strategies and violence that police use against against native people, particularly in border towns, 
you know, isn't just a tactic, right? It, it constitutes what you call an ecology of counterinsurgency. And, I, you know, maybe you could, you know, sort of expand on that a little bit in your description. Sure. Okay. First of all, can everyone hear me? <laughs> Zoom practice over the last year and a half. Thanks for that, David. Well, you just laid out my argument, so I don't need to say anything else. But um, no, Julie, thank you so much for um, talking about your chapter, your brilliant chapter in this book. And thanks to Tyler and David, you know, for inviting me to contribute. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, like Julie, I'm a scholar who is also embedded in movements. Um, and so I really try to write for movements. Um, that's kind of where my heart is as an intellectual and somebody who produces knowledge. So I have, as David said, um, been on the front lines for several years um, against different types of police violence. Of course, it's not just someone in a uniform, right, who is um, acting as, a pol as police, um, which is something I argue in my chapter. And so this chapter uh, and the call to write this chapter for this book really gave me a challenge to start to put the things that I was seeing on the front lines, the kind of an, kind of like boots on the ground analysis we um, were that was unfolding as we were facing um, police in Winslow, uh, the police station that we stormed after you know Austin Shipley murdered L'Oreal. Um, we were facing militias, um, armed militias last year during the George Floyd uprisings, which also had a really strong showing in Albuquerque and in New Mexico, um, you, around slightly different um, kinds of things like colonization um, and colonizer statues, statues to white supremacy. Um, and so we, what I'm writing about in this chapter is really informed by years of experience on the ground, organizing on these issues. And what I argue in the chapter at this ecology of counterinsurgency, when we think about the language of counterinsurgency, we often think about um, what might be considered like foreign wars, right? So the U.S. and what's going on in Afghanistan right now, right? The the um, the task of the first the Bush administration and Obama tried to kill Osama bin Laden as a type of counterinsurgency um, against terrorism, right? Terrorists who are threatening the stability or the very existence of the United States, right? The project of the United States. But in fact, if you look back in history at the original insurgents against which the United States had to develop these regimes of violence, whether it's the law, whether it's the police who relate to the law, um, the law is actually a regime of violence. I think a lot of people don't think of it that way. Um, that, that in fact, the indigenous nations that existed here, right, um, that needed to be mm, eradicated, dissolved, uh, kind of by any means necessary so that the project of the United States could really expand territorially and cohere into the nation state that we now understand as the United States. The, the language we typically use um, right now is settler colonialism to describe that. I think it's very helpful, useful, powerful language, right, to understand this larger structure that's always at play when we're talking about the United States and U.S. history. But that, in fact, that that process of conquering indigenous nations was also was and continues to be an imperial project, right? And so when we're thinking about U.S. imperialism, it's not just, right, the kind of counterinsurgency that happens over there in what we consider the foreign, right? Because we, I think what folks often think of when they think of native people and native nations and the way that we have been domesticated by law um, by the U.S. settler state is that we're sort of these domestic entities that are sort of folded into the larger kind of body politic of the United States. And so we're considered sort of the inside of the domestic nation. But in fact, if you really understand the history of U.S. imperialism um, and the, the wars against indigenous nations that the U.S. fought viciously and lost many times, they lost many times to native people and to native nations, um, 
especially when the U.S. didn't have as much military might as it does today, that those wars were and those frontiers and those borders were imperial borders. And so you think, you know, to the nomenclature of kind of contemporary U.S. military culture, you know, the code name um, for the capture and the murder of Osama bin Laden in 2011 under the Obama administration is Geronimo. Right. Geronimo, of course, is the famous um, San Carlos Apache, you know, warrior who held out for a really long time against U.S. invasion, um, fought ferociously and heroically, killed lots of, you know, U.S. soldiers. You know, was really a hero, actually, of these uh, imperial wars that the United States was fighting against indigenous nations. Um, you think about, you know, like Apache helicopters. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are really familiar with like the the language, the, the use of indigenous terminology for U.S. military tactics, paraphernalia, equipment, those kinds of things. Um, and so the reason why, right, that there there is this association with indigenous people and U.S. military endeavors, of course, the U.S. military is one of the primary sort of purveyors um, that of U.S. imperialism, although imperialism happens in a lot of other ways other than just military tactics, uh, right, is because the indigenous people and indigenous nations specifically were considered the first terrorists, right? The first terrorists and the first insurgents against U.S. empire. Um, and so even today, you know, the idea that L'Oreal Sinogeny, who was about five feet tall, very, very petite, you know, could be some sort of threat to this um, overweight, large, like white dude, um, Austin Shipley, that he has to shoot her five times, um, shoots part of her hand off, actually, and she, that this idea that she is a threat, right? And I think anyone who can be racialized as an insurgent is also seen as a threat in this particular way within kind of the imaginary of U.S. imperialism. That that idea of the insurgent, the original insurgent, the original terrorist, still very much is part of the way that indigenous people and indigenous nations are racialized and thought of uh, by the United States. And then of course it's police who carry out the order of, of the United States, the settler order. But the title of my chapter is the armed friendlies of settler order. Those are cops, but those are also of course, the men who are not in uniform militia, pretty much any vigilante or any citizenship, U S citizenship is a type of settler ontology, right? That is still very much premised on this notion that we must protect you know, the well-being of the United States from these terrorists, potential terrorists and insurgents. And so in this sense, like settler citizenship is itself a type of Indian killer kind of identity. And then that Indian killer, which is, you know, very often masculinized, it's highly gendered, right? Um, it's usually like a white man or white teenagers learning how to be white men in reservation border towns. Um, and they become white men through the act of brutalizing, murdering, raping and torturing native people. Um, particularly folks who live on the streets. This is something called um, Indian rolling. It's like a particular type of practice um, in reservation border towns that, you know, like this white masculine figure actually comes into their manhood through the act of Indian killing. And that this isn't an exceptional act, that this is actually sort of constitutive of settler citizenship in a place like the United States. And it comes from, right, this original kind of imperial war. And so the imperial impulse and the language around this and the treatment of other populations around the, the world, um, you know, as Indians, and then sort of the identity of police, of militiamen, of, of soldiers as Indian killers is really enshrined in the very fabric, right, of like the, the identity of the United States as, as what we know it, as the United States. So I talk a lot about this. Um, 
the Punisher figure, the reason why I got really interested in the Punisher was because Austin Shipley actually had that decal on his range bag in his cruiser. And, you know, because David and I were asked by the Human Rights Commission for the Navajo Nation to do a special investigation, I had to look through all the photos, I had to read all the reports, I had to watch all the videos, I had to watch the lapel camera footage um, of uh, L'Oreal's murder by Shipley. And I just kept coming back to the, the Punisher because I'd seen it a lot, but I didn't really know what it meant. And now, as you say, David, like, you know, we're kind of post January 6th Capitol Hill. And I think it's pretty clear now to people what The Punisher means. Um, but I do this whole breakdown. There's this popular Netflix show called The Punisher. Right. Um, so I kind of take a do a kind of a, an analysis of who The Punisher is in that. And it really fits you know, this white man, this white protagonist, this white male protagonist who is the Indian killer and the Indian killer is every every man um, in a settler society, right, based on um, imperial erasure of indigenous nations that, um, you know, the, the Punisher really sees everyone as an enemy. And so, right, you can be racialized as an enemy, but if you look at contemporary cop logic, right, this cop speak that David and Tyler outlined in their previous book, The Field Guide, that this cop logic and this cop speech really sees everyone as an enemy. Everyone can be a potential enemy combatant or everyone is an enemy combatant. And so it's the cop against the world, right? So the thin blue line is, is about civilization and savagery, but it's like also even more totalizing and a little more totalitarian actually and authoritarian than that. And so it's like literally cops have to be here to save the world because everyone is an enemy combatant going out to get them. And this paranoia, right, creates this culture of um, like trauma or this culture of like fragility. So somehow the cop and then like the white male vigilante who's Indian rolling and murdering indigenous people in the border town, all of a sudden is like unsafe you know, in society. And then last year we saw, right, all of this language from police and even these militiamen, they're like, we need to arm ourselves against these hordes. You know, there's obviously racial undertones to these ideas. These savages, anarchists are often thought of in the same way and racialized in the same way, like all these antifa hordes, these savages, like we need to really arm ourselves to the hilt to protect ourselves. And so part of this Indian killer, even though it's a hyper-violent, incredibly aggressive you know, identity and ontology, it's also based on this like fragility too, or this like perceived fragility um, that I think of course, like a lot of people have talked about in relationship to US imperialism and how there's all, they're like cops are always on the defense because they're always under siege, right? They're always under siege by these black and brown hordes. And so the kind of the original act of Indian killing in order to create the United States is this thing that's performed constantly and re-performed by all of these people, particularly white men who kind of can fall into this category um, of the cop, of, you know, the, the vigilante, the militia guy, the soldier, the general, um, again, pretty much any type of like white male subjectivity in um, a settler society like the United States. So this is what I talk about. And so then I'm like, I finish off and I'm like, this is why when we're talking about abolition, if we're really, you know, talking about cops and carcerality, you can't really talk about that without talking about indigenous liberation and decolonization. And I've been doing a lot of work trying to put kind of the traditions, um, the political traditions of uh, abolition and decolonization closer together and interweaving them. Because I think 
that the interweaving of those is really powerful for our movements as we continue to build them, you know, under like a ticking time bomb of climate change. <laughs> so always trying to move movements forward and how we're bringing political traditions together um, and working in closer coalition so we can wage, you know, strong revolutionary struggle. But I'll stop there. I think I've been talking for a while. Thanks. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Melanie. I remember when when we were talking about when we were talking with Melanie about the book for a while, Melanie and Tyler and I were were exchanging texts, photos of Punisher logos and three percenter images I, we were finding on cars as we were driving. And I mean, I see these all the time, but it was just something about, oh, I'm going to next time I'm driving, I'm going to see if I see any Punisher logos so I can text those photos to Melanie and Tyler and every car. You know, we live in a border town here in Albuquerque, so it's everywhere. I mean, I can't drive down the highway without seeing Punisher logos or three percenter logos in the back of cars. I've stopped looking into cars. I no longer make eye contact with drivers because of this, because it's just the, that, you know, you're right. It's, it's, it's a particular kind of white man driving those cars. Um, it's cultural, right? It's not just enshrined in particular types of profession and professions. It's like a cultural and a social thing now. Like that, that's why everyone has Punisher. So everyone is operating like a cop, like cop logic has literally gone viral. It's hegemonic. Right. I mean, I think we, we, we can't really talk anymore about the police powers as being sort of like distributed widely in, among the state. Right. Because now now it's I mean, even the Texas anti like choice law basically deputizes everybody. Right. So everybody's a cop now and they're enforcing the law to control women's lives. So this is this sort of extension of cop logic. As you, you point out in your book, I think in your chapter, it, it, you know, we, we can't understand that outside of like this sort of long waged Indian wars that really provide the context for 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 that, you know, for what Austin Shipley can do as as like, oh, that's completely awful what he did to Lord You mentioned um, Thin Blue Line. Right. And that's that's a great segue into Tyler's chapter. Tyler's chapter. Great title, Inventing Humanity or the Thin Blue Line is Patronizing Shit. And, you know, one um, before I, I asked Tyler a specific question, he talks one warning. He's he's been having some streaming problems um, and he might freeze. And if he freezes, let's just all wait and stare intently at Tyler. Uh, however, he freezes. Let's just do that. OK, so <laughs> I'll let Tyler talk about his chapter. But, but the thing I find really fantastic about Tyler's chapter is. First of all, you can when you're going to read something Tyler writes, you know you're going to get a, a very specific kind of history lesson that's going to dig deep and specifically in one direction. And what I love about what Tyler does in this is he brings us right back to the social contract, right? When when we're talking about the thin blue line, as you point out, Melanie, it is a totalizing kind of ideology. It's a totalizing view of the world in which there are cops and then there are threats, and that's really all there is. Um, and potential threats, right? Um, and but as as Tyler points out in his chapter, um, you know that that has that finds purchase because of this sort of claim that by virtue of being a part of this civilization, we're entering into a contract, and that social contract is us giving up our so we're, we're we're limiting our own authority and and handing it over to the state and that's and that and then our security becomes managed by the by police and so this notion of a of a social contract always by the way as Tyler points out in his chapter understood as a, a kind of a natural fact right it's just like this is just a natural it's a natural law that describes this and so Tyler minds that to sort of get us you know to a place where we can understand the thin blue line for the really compelling role it plays in shoring up police legitimacy. And I'll let you talk more about that, Tyler, however you want. And hopefully you don't have any streaming problems and we can hear every word you say. 
Okay. Well, thank you, David. And obviously, thanks to Julie and Melanie for, for doing this tonight and for being part of the volume and for all the other authors uh, and for Haymarket being so great to work with. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be really, really quick. Uh, I think there's already been some overlap talked about uh, with my chapter. So I guess I'll just say where, where this kind of where the idea of the chapter came from, which was a few things. One is what Melanie's pointed out um, that, I mean, I've been I've been really looking at police since about 2010, 11, um, and the thin blue line started to pop up even way before, uh, you know, the, the last few years, uh, seeing it on students' T-shirts. And so, you know, it was it, seeing it on billboards. It was becoming this, uh, you know, this cultural kind of aesthetic that I was seeing in all kinds of ordinary spaces. Uh, so that kind of, and, you know, as a, kind of a critical scholar of policing, that kind of, you know, I started to asking, that's kind of where I often start is just kind of like basic ideas of like, where did that come from? Um, but then at the same time, I started seeing other people commenting in the popular press after I started looking into it. And even some some critical scholars and activists referencing the thin blue line as as um, coming out of the 1960s primarily. Um, in fact, there's a lot of people saying, you know, that it was it was invented. I mean, you can find this like it was coined, like originally coined by William Parker, the racist anti-communist uh, police chief uh, of LAPD, William Parker. Um, and as I started digging into it, just going through old newspaper archives, you realize that that itself was was very misleading. And this leads to, I think, you know, I, uh, an issue that I'm often kind of interested in, which is sometimes we have a very, when it comes to policing, a, a, a historical imagination where we tend to think that everything started in the 1980s uh, or the 1990s war on crime. And so as I started digging in, I started finding old historical newspaper references going back for, for the thin blue line specifically, going all the way back uh, to the to the 1850s and 1860s. And so this isn't a um, and so the chapter originally started as kind of like a historical debunking to try to say that although we might we know that policing as a project gets intensified with more money and the power of unions and you know all kinds of the balance of forces changing that we have to be aware of, there's something very um, uh, ingrained about the police idea and it's kind of uh, political imaginary and how like what we've been talking about here, the civilization savagery framework. And so it comes out of the thin red line, right? This is like the standard narrative, you know, that it comes out of the thin red line, which was a, a reference to British soldiers, you know, red coats uh, in the 1850s, the Crimean War, whatnot. Um, and then it comes out of the thin blue line kind of comes out of that. But really, the chapter then kind of changes it, what I thought was going to be more of a historical chapter ends up turning to be kind of a conceptual thing. Um, but so so what I I'm trying the, the premise of the chapter is just simply taking the thin blue lie seriously um, um, uh, for what it kind of what it claims. And then this is kind of a thing that I'm interested in, in general and in kind of taking what police say seriously um, and. And so I, I really just tried to provide an, a conceptual kind of critique of what is going on in the thin blue line as this kind of this, you know, mythological, I call it using the work of Michael Tossig, like the, myth, the mythological warfare of the civilization and savagery. And I think what I what I try to suggest is that policing the thin blue line is like this, what I call the police conception of humanity, which is that so that. 
why the police idea is, is so hard to challenge. And I think to comment to or to link up with David's earlier comments about reform, why the and why maybe abolition seems so crazy is that what the thin blue line really teaches us, I think, is how synonymous police is to our conceptions of order, the human civilization, society itself. If you even look at old sociology's definitions of society, it's like order is built into it. And anytime you have discussions of order, the police are kind of lurking, right? That the that the idea that we can't even think of order without the police idea kind of. And so I think this is, you know, one of the you know, I have a line where I, I use Breck's famous uh, you know, Bertolt Brecht's famous uh, aphorism, first bread, then morality. And I say, you know, the thin blue line kind of tries to reverse that, right? From first bread, then morality, to first police, then humanity, right? That there is no such thing as the, even the human uh, or civilization without police being this, what, what I call like a first order prerequisite. Like, and I make distinctions, I won't get into the details between police and law that, um, you know, that there's even a distinction between police and law where the idea that even law itself is not even thinkable without having first this kind of what me and David call on the field guy, this prerogative power that be that's autonomous. Right. That that James Baldwin called arrogantly autonomous. Right. That it, it it's autonomous. The police power is defined by this arrogant autonomy that makes it kind of this precondition or at least it tells itself and us. That it's the precondition for the most basic standards of living, right? And so, to reference, you know, to to get to David's point about the social contract, in one way, it, the thin blue line is just really police plagiarizing the Hobbesian narrative of the social contract in the state of nature. That, um, you know, that that it is a that it's the Hobbesian state of nature that we can't actually have any type of real quote civilized society. And I think this is where you can see with Melanie's chapter in terms of, you know, Indian killing is kind of being at the heart of it because it, it thin the line kind of shares the settler colonial. Right. I mean, that's what it is. It's like an adoption, the police adoption of a of a settler colonial mythology. Um, those very frontier esque. Right. There's a frontier kind of component to it as well. And and it's pervasive um, and it's not just celebrated by I think it's important to keep in mind that it's not just celebrated by overtly right wing uh you know that that liberals and democrats however you want to define those terms um have long perpetuated this and i'll, I'll just quote one thing uh from 1993 bill clinton and we all you know or many of our listeners or viewers should know that you know the clintons played a great role uh in the buildup of the prison you know, state and Naomi Murakawa has pointed out liberals' role in that beautifully. Um, but here's like a quote that I think highlights some. This is from Clinton, Bill Clinton, 1993, when he calls police quote sentinels of liberty, a thin blue line. Nothing that's nothing less than our buffer from chaos, a shield that Americans may not always think about until it's raised in their defense. And then he goes on to say, um, the, our citizens in their homes. And where they work and where they play, it all rests on that line, right? Meaning, you know, so so 
at home, at your work, and even your leisure and your happiness and your you know is is tied to the police idea that there's no that you can't even actually play at the playground or work without police is kind of this first line of defense. And police are often confused on this; they don't know if they're the first line or the last line of defense. And so, even in their own discourse, they're often very confused on it, where they actually you know they they never can decide. Like, do we become are we are we first or are we are we last, right? Are we only when thing when shit hits the fan, or are we this iron kind of thing that makes things possible in the first place? And the one thing that I would that that I would highlight is and this links up to Melanie's point too, is I think the thinness of the line is really important. That it's always thin. <laughs> to the police, they're always under siege. It's always insecure and yet somehow always ultimately victorious in some ways, right? So they have it both ways with this kind of this conception of humanity or civilization, right? That it's it's never thin, even though there's, you know, pro-police movements throughout history that have that are asked for. You see this right now, asking for more funding, you know, but even when they get those things, they still claim a thinness of the world. And that the that the so I think I would leave it there, but I, but I, but I think I, I think that's I mean it's a I think it's a basic point that I'm trying to get in the chapter, but I think it's one that's actually important. That kind of the idea that life itself uh, is contingent on police is this ruling idea of capitalist order. That and I think it, it it's a conceptual chapter that might not seem related to contemporary moments on some level. But I think it is because it it relates to how the police idea is constantly kind of infiltrating and colonizing our conceptions of order and and society itself. And so part of the the struggle against police in in you know in the streets um, is also contending with kind of how the the police idea kind of comes to to inf- and you see it culturally as we're saying right that it comes we we tend to take on this idea of police. That, and you see it with students. You know, if I, if I talk to my students, right? The idea of just simply police as this taken for granted power that you can't actually do without, despite the fact that you know the the police. You know, there's all kinds of evidence to suggest like policing is not actually making you safer and this and that, right? But the idea is it's seductive, um, and and so I'll, I'll leave it at that. We we can get maybe into more details later, but. Good enough for now. Heard myself talk enough. But you're not done talking. You're not done talking Ask the question. So I can talk about my chapter. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. David, yes. Please briefly tell us your chapter. <laughs> you don't even try a half-hearted introduction to mine like I did okay. to yours. Did, uh, at least did, I tried yours. I think there's clear parallels between Melanie's chapter and my chapter. And I think with David's chapter and Julie's chapter, there's clear parallels because what David's doing is really getting at questions around lead poisoning in Baltimore um, and linking what he calls poisoning and policing as kind of these linked things. So there's, again, this theme that parallels uh, Julie in terms of slow violence and fast violence. Uh, And he does this uh, through a really good reading of of the the killing of Corrine Gaines and Freddie Gray. Um, pointing out that they, as 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 you know, young children uh, suffered from lead lead contamination, and so 
uh, yeah, if you want to talk more about it, but it took, I, I read it again this morning. I read everybody's chapters again this morning and I, I texted him that I really, some really good, really good material in there in terms of really getting us, to, getting us to link up the environmental justice uh, concerns with policing and, and showing them, as Julie said, not, not being separate. Linked. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks for bringing up the connection to Julie, because when I'm done, Talking briefly about my chapter, I, I have a question for Julia about that because I, I was thinking of those connections too. But yeah, I was when you know when we finished um, Police Field Guide, I was thinking about what I wanted. I really wanted to examine something outside of of New Mexico. I, I wanted to sort of understand because I, actually that's why I brought up Julie's point about um, what she called the sort of specific terrain of racial capitalism, and I was really fascinated about Baltimore. And the the the, the um, attention to the, the the murder of Freddie Gray, um, and really the the one thing that a lot of, of black feminist scholars have pointed out and activists have pointed out that the the real lack of attention to the police murder of Corinne Gaines just about a year later. I mean, there was really very little written about Corinne Gaines. It, most everything that was written about Corinne Gaines blamed Corinne Gaines for her own death. I mean, almost entirely. Um, and there's been some work recently, Barbara Ransby writes a little bit about Corinne Gaines, scholars that I cite in the chapter have written, I think really, really interestingly about, um, about Corinne Gaines. But the thing that, that fascinated me um, was when I, when, I, when I started to try to read more broadly about Corinne Gaines's experience, it was the um, amount of time that people talked about her being um, poisoned by lead as a child. I mean, it was just like in everything. Every time anyone brought up the Corinne Gaines killing by police in Baltimore, they brought up the fact that she had been poisoned as a child by lead paint. Um, and it, it like structured every story. And even the people that were, were even the pieces that were critical of police, there was always a moment where they were like, but, you know, and the, the link between lead and crime is real. They would just accept that idea that that, you know, um, lead poisoned children um you know, have a higher incidence of criminal activity as if that's some sort of objective thing that we can just, uh, you know, count as a number. Um, but it, so I decided to look into it and, I, and I, I went to Baltimore and I spent some time looking through the um, lawsuits because Corinne Gaines's family and Freddie Gray's family both sued the slumlords of the homes they both of them lived in as children. And so there's this fascinating paper trail of efforts to document, like who poisoned them? How are they poisoned? What was the extent of their poisoning? And then what was the implications for them? You know, what were the medical issues for them? And the thing that I, I quickly realized was this sort of pattern in which, and by the way, if you don't, if you're not familiar with uh, lead-based paint poisoning or lead poisoning in general, because it's not just lead-based paint at this point in Baltimore, um, of children, I mean, it's it is epidemic in Baltimore. I mean, in West Baltimore, I think I read some studies where they estimated 90,000 children were poisoned um, and almost entirely black working class children in largely West Baltimore. Um, and there were these interesting parallels between Corinne Gaines's experience and Freddie Gray's experience. And in fact, um, Corinne Gaines was, uh, the book of her poisoning happened in a house on Belvedere Avenue near Pimlico Race Course in Baltimore, if you know, if you know Baltimore. And her family just fled there when they, when their pediatrician found out that she was, and she was severely um, poisoned by lead paint in that. And the house is just, just it was just, the, the, her parents just struggled to just keep the kids away from all the hazards in that house. And they just didn't have any op. And these are, you know, privately owned 
by slumlords in, in, in Baltimore. They, they, they like fled that house and the house they found was literally around the corner from where Freddie Gray would be, would be, you know, grabbed by police, thrown in that paddy wagon. And, and two weeks later, after that, that rough ride severed his spine, he would die. She was right around the corner. And as I point out in the, in the chapter, that's a coincidence that she happened to live around the corner, but it's not an accident that this same people who were poisoned by by lead as children were targeted by cops as adults. And and I think it I think that, you know, what what it what I was trying to do in the piece and what Tyler and I were trying to do in the, in the book was take seriously this sort of specific context in which police violence unfolds. And so in Baltimore, right, policing, as we was as I put it in the in that chapter, really sort of like it, it like it, they're they're patrolling the pathway to to poisoning for children. I mean, it's like the slumlords aren't coming under, uh, aren't the targets or subjects of police violence or police harassment. It's the people that are poisoned by the slumlords. Um, and you know, what, one of the things that it tries to do is to, I'm trying to take nature seriously, right? What is the nature of lead-based paint poisoning? That number one, it would lead people to just blame Corinne Gaines for her own killing by police. Lead-based paint poisoning had nothing to do. She was pulled over on a traffic ticket, refused to go to the to the courthouse. Courthouse just refused to. Actually, she refuses. This might be another reason why Corinne Gaines's case wasn't taken up by a lot of people because she had this really sort of unorthodox politics that had a lot more in common with like the sovereign citizen movement than than any other politics on the left. I mean, it's not a politics of the left. It's a sort of reactionary politics. It's sort of a libertarian politics, but it's, it's you know, it, it, this is the politics of Ammon Bundy, you know, um, the sovereign c- citizen movement. And so like Barbara Ransby points out in her book when, when she mentions Corinne Gaines that, you know, the sort of unorthodox of her politics ends up being a way that pe- police can, people can, we can ignore her death or, or contribute to explaining away her death is like, she's just, you know, she was unhinged. Um, she didn't have all of her faculties. And really the, <laughs> to call Corinne Gaines unhinged, would be would, the only the only evidence we have of her unhingement is that she she refuses the authority of police over her life. I mean that's that's basically what she did. That she was you know she just refused the authority of police over her life. And of course, if you've ever come into contact with police, you can't refuse the authority of the police. And so you know they killed her for it. And that's that's the simple explanation. Um, but the the chapter I'm, I'm trying to sort of examine number one like what happens to people when they're poisoned by lead. Right. I mean, what is the implications? What happens to them? How is that? How do they manage that? And how does it come to be something that police and also uh, liberals, who are the ones that largely sort of like apologize for the police violence against her, come to rely on that diagnosis as the explanation for their own death? Right. There's this logic that unfolds. It's like lead produces pathology, pathology produces criminal behavior, criminal behavior requires police. Sometimes police have to use violence. Sometimes they kill people. It's not their fault. Um, and so that's that's what I'm trying to do in the um, in the chapter. And it, it sort of contributes a little bit to the way that Tyler and I write in the epilogue about, you know, taking nature seriously, you know? So for example, and this, this is my segue into a question for Julie, just to give you a warning, Julie, that I'm coming for the question. Um, you know, we, we, 
it, our, our epilogue is sort of about Foucault's book, Discipline and Punish. And then everyone who's read it knows that, you know, he relies on the plague town as, as kind of a real place, but also a metaphor to help him explain the sort of the operation of power in the sort of disciplinary society and, and, and how power becomes sort of ramified through particular kinds of tactics and strategies um, the, the sort of capillary notion of power, instead of like one cop for every person, it's it's different ways that we are. So th- there's an architecture to power, and Foucault is trying to claim that like the 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 pandemic that he's writing about in France at the you know you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago precipitates this sort of opportunity, right? It, it becomes what he calls the political dream of the plague, right? The the ability to totally control a place because of the fear of the of the virus lends all of these disciplinary institutions this new ability to control, to discipline, that they take with them after the plague, and then it sort of pervades society more generally. And the thing, and so, and Tyler and I, by the way, we're writing the epilogue in the middle of the pandemic, and when no one knows what the fuck this virus can do, what who it will affect, and it's like, what was, my first thought is, what was Foucault thinking? Like, I mean, like, the virus is everything. Like if, you, if you're not taking nature seriously, if you're not taking the conditions of, of, of or the context in which those disciplinary institutions operate, what can you really say about those disciplinary institutions? And so like, I can't, what can I say about police violence in Baltimore if I don't understand that those patterns in relation to patterns of childhood lead poisoning by slumlords, right? Which are absolutely linked. And once you, once you make those connections, um, you know, then we can start, first of all, it overcomes the sort of simplistic ideas about bad apple cops and this cop just, or, or a lot of people did with Corinne Gaines was just focus specifically on the, on the, on the events that occurred around her death rather than the whole sort of like larger context in which she was raised in what Julie would probably call the sort of deathscapes of West Baltimore. Um, and that's, that's sort of what I wanted to ask you, Julie. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do in the book is really take nature seriously. Right. I mean, we can't understand the context or understand policing or the police powers if we don't understand the specific context in which, which police operate. Um, you know, as I said before, you, the phrase you use in your book or your chapter is the specific terrain of racial capitalism. Right. And and um, you, you use, I think, uh, you know, anyone who's read any sort of environmental justice scholarship has probably read Rob Nixon's book. And his argument about slow violence, and you you bring that in. I think that's actually a pretty useful way to think about police violence in Kern County, and even really in Baltimore too, right? Because it's not always this sort of exceptional violence of the murder, the killing, right? It's this sort of everyday grinding harassment, right? If you're in the border town, it's this sort of everyday harassment by vigilantes, by business owners, by people just you know, just tell move along, move along. If you're on the streets of Albuquerque talking to people who live on the streets, it's a sort of forced mobility of their lives, like the cops saying, move along. They're never welcome anywhere, right? And and the way you talk about it in current to me is really fascinating because you're able to link quite a bit there. And I, I wanted maybe to talk a little bit more about your use of Rob Nixon's concept of slow violence in your chapter, Julie, because it, it's a really helpful way to think differently about police Right. If we're just going to oppose the exceptional examples of police violence, um, we're, you know, we're going to find ourselves always um, easily co-opted by reformists who can promise to stop those exceptional examples of police violence. But that slow unfolding violence, I mean, it's the it's the soundtrack 
to the lives of everybody who lives in Kern County, and it certainly is the soundtrack to the lives of people who live in West Baltimore. So that, that's my open-ended question, Julie. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the idea of, you know, environmental racism as violence is um, something that, you know, the uh, environmental justice movement has fought against for a long time. And so, you know, thinking about environmental racism as kind of this normalized way in which uh, certain kinds of violence get just um, accepted um, in the Central Valley, in the Environmental Justice in a Moment of Danger book that you mentioned that came out last year, my second chapter is about water justice and water pollution. I talk about Flint and the Central Valley um, and how in a lot of ways, you know, the the violence um, against the poor and people of color in Flint and the Central Valley, it's very structurally similar, but they uh, one is just accepted as the way it is. You know, the Central Valley just looks like this, you know, hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of people um, don't have access to clean water. So they, they buy all their water, you know, whereas in Flint, you know, what was um, why Flint got so much attention was because it was like there was an agent that people could say, okay, well, actually there was a state cover up and the state, you know, mass poisoned, lead poisoned um, uh, an entire city. And so there's the horror of it. Do you know what I mean? And the prosecutions and the, you know, but but in some ways, what's the difference, right? I mean, the the um, the violence that's subjected to the populations in Flint and the Central Valley around water um, is like, you know, there's no difference functionally, you know, to me. Um, one is urban, one is rural, one is majority black, one is, you know, majority Latinx. But, you know, really, it's it's no different, right? It's like, but one is um, only horrible because there's an, a start point, you know, and that and one is just accepted the start points further back. So everybody sort of accepts it, you know, as like, you know, the, the condition of what, you know, it is to be. And so I really um, was and I think maybe you had given me feedback about that chapter, but really thinking about like, why is one thing worse than the other? Like, why is fast violence of someone being shot in the head different than the just, you know, the normalization of, you know, the policing and imprisonment of, you know, certain groups of people, you know, as just accepted. Um, and so, you know, if you reject that as inevitable or okay, then, you know, you there then then you get you have to think about like what what it's doing structurally, you know, and how it's tied to um, the the um, the prevailing power structures, you know, that that are. So that's one thing is I wanted to think about like the different ways in which violence um, operates, the, the different registers um, and to argue against kind of the the like reflexive like, you know, and this goes back to the George Floyd, like why is George Floyd? You know, why was George Floyd the, the trigger for a lot of the protests when, you know, we all know that, you know, the, the state uh, police killings, you know, is endemic. You know, even his last words of I can't breathe, that's Eric Garner. That's like, I think, 180 something people. You know, The New York Times did this whole report about that. But then that takes us to, you know, Fanon and, you know, um, colonialism more broadly. But, you know, I, I mean, and I'm not that's not my area of study. Do you know what I mean about why some trigger, you know, action and others don't. But, you know, what I really wanted to um, think about, you know, with with your prompting and others is like, why is one acceptable and one not? You know, and I think the activists are saying that there is no difference between fast violence and slow violence. Violence is violence. Um, and so then the other thing I wanted to just throw out there is that I was really interested, you know, when you conceptualize the volume, the, the both of you around the nature part of it. And, you know, because I come out of the environmental justice movement, like nature is a key word in environmental justice. And, you know, the, the, 
debates about what nature means, you know, um, both the inherence, you know, like like nature as being unchangeable, as being given from God. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm really, you know, impacted by um, work of people like Raj Patel and others who really talk about, you know, the idea of cheapening of life um, as what nature is. But in, and I, you know, the short, uh, I really love the, the history of the world in seven cheap things. And he says the cheapening of nature is like the foundation of, of it all. And so, you know, I think that there's a way in which, you know, people talk about nature as like environment, which yes, they're linked, but it's also much more than that. It's, it's like the whole sort of, you know, um, system, um, uh, that's, you know, hundreds of years old. And so, you know, and, and of course, like that, the, as as soon as that system gets set up, there's always opposition to that system. So um, so I think, you know, those I don't know if that helps or not. But, you know, when I was thinking about that idea of savagery and civilization, you know, and all the different ways in which that gets you know played out and how what's the time scale in which those those debates, you know, um, come from. And, you know, I'm impacted, of course, you know, by Sylvia Winter, you know, and all the people who write about, you know, the idea of man and civilization um, in, in these different contexts. And so, you know, I think that the key words of violence, nature, order, um, I I think that the the um the chapters in this book do such a great job really taking taking these kind of big questions um but in some really focused ways which I find so useful. So thanks again. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Yeah, that was great. That was great. I, I, yeah, it made me think. I think Tyler was going to ask a question, um but I just wanted to point out We've got some great questions posted from folks listening, and and I, if we have a chance to get to some of those, that would be that would be awesome. But Tyler, I know that you had a question. Yeah, I had a question for Melanie, and I think she's kind of already addressed part of this, but I think it's I, I think so one of the things you said was about you know we we all could be a threat, and of course we know that there's disparities and, you know, r racial disparities and class disparities about who is subjected to police violence, both lethal and non-lethal. Um, but I think there's something intriguing about what you're saying about the, if we take the police worldview seriously as everybody kind of being a threat and something that I, I suggest in, in my, my own chapter, uh, I, I wanted to read something that you wrote um, that, that I find to be really compelling and if you could maybe just talk through it even though i think some, some of it you've addressed but maybe kind of hone in on a little bit more you say as agents of the state um tasked with upholding law and order police carry out an essential indeed sacred duty on behalf of u.s settler sovereignty indian killing if indians and indian nations are quote the origins of the stateless terrorist combatants within U.S. enunciations of sovereignty, as Jody Bird points out, then all forms of policing and warfare are at their base about killing Indians and making anyone who defies U.S. authority into an Indian that must be killed. When I read that, I'm thinking, are you offering then, or if you could talk through how that might help us understand also police violence, not just against native people but against anyone in in essence as itself linked to the history of settler colonialism and kind of the the foundational violence of indian killing right that so there's something here that you're offering i think that suggests that there's this larger structure in place 
that helps us understand something beyond just the killing of L'Oreal Tizini. I messed up the name there. Tizini. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that a little bit. Sorry, I'm cutting out too. I don't know if I'm. That's okay. Can you all hear me? Sorry, I always have to start every webinar that way. I apologize. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the worst thing ever. Uh, thank you for that question. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to go back to um, David. You, I really like what you said as a summary, like right after I stopped talking and then you were talking about your chapter and introducing your your question to Julie that, you know, this um, cop logic where there's police and there's threats. And those are the only two subject positions you're allowed to occupy because we're talking about order, right? In the social order of a settler society, um, in the social order of the United States, I think helps us understand the way that like racialized populations can get imported into uh, particularly the category of the threat, right? And there's so much work, so many people have talked about this in relationship, of course, not just to indigenous people, but so the, right, so that the way that that actually operates every day in real time, um, this emphasis on the normal, the normal kind of function of this order, how it manifests in our lives, the fact that you're not allowed to question police. It's literally just a cult, it's a cultural truism to the point where um, it's the, as you argue, Tyler's the precondition for pretty much every thing at the very being, our very biological and social existence in the United States and a place like the United States. Um, that this is like describing the larger structure, the larger way that order is organized, right? Through the idea that there's just cops and then there's like everyone else and there are these threats, right? And that different people can occupy those different subject positions and that weird binary um, that exists within this concept of social order. But that the the actual kind of historical origin of that order, if you really think chronologically, it comes like way to the very beginning, right, of, of what is now the United States. And that is like the figure of the like the indigenous, you know, enemy combatant, the indigenous nation that's a warring nation at war with the United States that must be conquered. And so what I, I think what I'm trying to argue is not that everyone can be indigenous because that's like a weird like that just that would just go to like a weird new age place that a lot of people go to that I'm not interested at all in arguing or like even allowing remotely because it happens so often in the movement with non-native people. It's not that everyone can occupy the subject position of an indigenous enemy combatant. It's that right that this is like the original kind of discourse that then creates like all of these citations over and over again of the very notion of order itself um, because the U.S. is a settler society and because, and I mean, I think the U.S. does this primarily through imperialism and of course through different types of policing. So thank you for the question to clarify what I was saying. Um, but, and David, thank you for clarifying what I was saying because I think that helped me get <laughs> to that next place. Great. I mean, do you want to have a follow-up, Tyler? Or because we, we have um, the um, oh, you're welcome, Melanie. I don't think I didn't think I was clarifying anything you were you were saying, but uh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, by the way, there was there is one question. For, um, Matt Hosky asks, you know, is there a productive or substantive difference between policing and law enforcement? And I don't know if any of us have a great answer to that question, but I do know that one thing I love about this book is the effort that every contributor goes to, to move us as far as possible away from a view of police as just a cop in a uniform with a gun. Um, and you know, even in the chapters like yours, Melanie, and mine, which talks specifically about you know, particular victims or particular cops, right? the point is not to focus attention on, on, on a police 
a, like a cop or a police officer, um, but rather to suggest that 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 encounter, that violent encounter, gives us an opportunity to recognize so much more that went into that moment. Like like um, Austin Shipley's murder of L'Oreal Sinegini didn't just happen on the day he killed her, right? I mean, this was this is like generations of effort by vigilantes and cops to make sure that people like L'Oreal Sinegini are constantly insecure. Um, and their security requires her her insecurity. So that, you know, um, policing then becomes something much larger in the in the chapters in this book, right? It, we're, we're talking about the police powers broadly understood and even beyond the state, which I think your chapter, Melanie, is clearest about, which is like, we, if, you're, if you're just thinking about the police powers as forms of state violence or a, mo- a particular mode of state violence, then we're missing the role of vigilantes which are which are crucial um, in police power, and in particular, and and I can only speak from the Southwest, from New Mexico, but um, at least we became we were reminded this last year about the important role of militias, fascist militias, um, with police. I mean, armed friendlies is a phrase that comes from police. You know, as you point out, I mean, the the fascist militias we we might call fascist militias, but cops call armed friendlies. That's literally the the term they have. For fascist militias, and because they understand that that their their job of sort of order maintenance and fabricating order requires the work and help of vigilantes and militias. Um, and you know, another thing I think in terms of answering that question, I don't know if anyone else wants to maybe say I, anything about this. I was going to. I was going to say something. I mean, in terms of the question about is there any productive or substantive difference between just policing and law enforcement? I mean, there's a different variety of different ways we can answer it. But I mean, I think one way is, you know, a lot of uh, empirical sociologists, criminologists pointed this out. It does very law enforcement, technically speaking, um, meaning they don't spend a lot of time actually enforcing um, law in any real technical sense right that they kind of exist in this gray area where they're enforcing all you know a noise complaint is not necessarily some clear legal violation and yet they kind of intervene in this kind of way and so i i i kind of push the view that i mean we need to think of policing and law as quite separate even though they're intimately intertwined but that's that's what i mean by policing as a prerogative power that it's meant you know Law is too slow to get things done for the state on some level is one way of thinking about it. And the, the police then is this kind of everyday executive power to be able to kind of coercively intervene in the lives uh, of predominantly, you know, the racialized poor. Um, and so I think and, and I'm thinking here also the work of one of the contributors, Martin Oklos, you know, that he, he really kind of, ha- you know, the, he has a, the 20th anniversary of his classic, The Fabrication of Social Order, is just came out with Verso uh, under a slightly different title. They reversed the title and subtitle. But one of the key things he makes there is that one of the big mythologies around policing is that policing from its beginning, not just the police, but the police powers uh, writ large was always about order broadly conceived like everything was in its ambit it was unbounded it was an unlimited power and part of the liberal kind of reduction of policing to law enforcement was kind of one of its key ideological components and convincing us that policing is predominantly just about the law and how that works in all kinds of classed and racialized way right well who who would be against the law right or law enforcement um 
Right. And so, so I think, I think there is productive differences and not thinking of it just as law enforcement. That's why I, I, in my own writing, like I, 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 I just refuse to use the word law enforcement when I talk about police, it's police power. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone else wanted to say anything about that. I think that um, we uh, we're running out of time, rapidly running out of time. And I don't want to hold, you know, we don't want to go over an hour and a half because that's so presumptuous of us that anyone would want to listen to us for hours on end. But I also don't feel like I've heard enough from everybody, but whatever. I mean, well, let's just write another book and then we can have another excuse. Tyler hates to do these anyway, so he's just glad this is over. That's why he's been in shadow the whole time. He's like, <laughs> he's been sh- my lighting as best as I can get it, but I want to, I, I just personally, I just want to thank Julie and Melanie, um, for joining us. It's, it's really been great. I, I know that it's fake labor day, but you still could have been doing something else. So I do appreciate that you, you both being here. It's, it's great to see you. Um, and I want to thank, um, John from Haymarket and everyone at Haymarket for, for putting this on. And, uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to more of these questions. These questions are all great. Uh, if I could read these questions, I'm not going to do it. They, they each would take four hours to answer. So they're, they're almost impossible answers to que- questions to answer. Um, but they're, they're important questions. And that's the thing. Whenever we do this, it's, it's just impossible to do this stuff. Also, thanks. Uh, John reminds me, thank you, uh, Amanda, for captioning um, during this. And, um, and so I have nothing further. Um, Tyler, do you have any any goodbyes to say or thanks just, to make? Just want to say thanks uh, for all the all the contributors uh, and to Haymarket uh, and obviously the panelists tonight. Uh, it's been it's been been fun, even though I'm I'm not a big fan of uh, yeah. this kind of, this kind of thing. But yeah, check check out uh, the book. You can get it on Haymarket's website. Uh, so don't go to Amazon. Right. Okay. Bye, everybody. Uh, have a great day for the rest of Labor Day for everyone on the panel or watching. Um, and um, fuck the police. <laughs> I was going to say that, David. Oh, <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.